News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are, of course, into the rainy months now, right? Weather forecast not looking great this week. Winds definitely picking up tomorrow. It's hard to think about wildlife prevention, but this is actually a good time to be doing exactly that. A new report from Simon Fraser University recommends the management of community forests may be the key to preventing wildfires. So our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Kelsey Copes-Gerbitz and Sarah Dixon-Hoyle. They're two PhD candidates with UBC's Faculty of Forestry. And she first asked them a very simple question. What are community forests? So a community forest in British Columbia is a long-term tenure that is awarded by the government um, to a local community or to a First Nation or a community group um, or potentially a collaboration between those different groups. And these tenures are really supposed to support um, community-led management of the forest. Often these forests are close to communities um, and present potential problems for major licensees to um, go in and harvest timber. And largely this is because there are so many values within these forests. So community forests are really uniquely situated to manage for multiple different kinds of values. So everything from recreation to um, visual values to supporting local jobs um, and also uh, to addressing wildfire risk. Right. And the research that you've done really suggests that how we manage those community forests could really be the key in wildfire prevention, right? That's right. So as Kelsey said, these community forests uh, are quite unique in that they are located um, often really close to, to communities, to um, cities, towns, to First Nation communities. Um, so this both poses um, a risk in terms of wildfire, a risk to communities, um, but also an opportunity to try and manage some of that risk. So um, as Kelsey said, community forests often have to manage for a diversity of community values and priorities. Um, and increasingly, a priority for, for many communities around BC is managing the risk of some of these large-scale, high-intensity wildfires that we've been seeing. So, Kelsey, how do we then manage that risk? That's a great question. Um, and what we really learned from the community forests is that there is a huge diversity of approaches to managing that risk. Um, sometimes that falls in uh, what we would call proactive wildfire management which is thinking more about the um, preparedness and prevention. So activities like creating a community wildfire protection plan, thinking about how your community might evacuate or identifying areas where the risk is highest and potentially doing some uh, removal of the hazardous fuels in those locations. And some communities are also working um, not only within their community forest boundaries, but also with adjacent landowners and land managers to manage that risk. So Sarah, does your report indicate that there is government intervention that needs to take place here so that they can better support community forests and thus wildfire prevention? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and one of the key recommendations that uh, we present in the report that's coming from community forest managers is really the need for greater funding um, and also training capacity building support from government, so from the provincial government. 
So there are a number of uh, funding programs that have been running for a number of years that can support local communities, including community forests, in um, doing things like fuels treatments, so um, thinning out dense forests, reducing hazardous fuels around communities. Um, and one of the key recommendations is to really continue some of these funding programs that allow community forests to manage over multiple years um, and also across kind of multiple land tenures. So supporting that collaboration. Um, and again, building some expertise in the province in, in wildfire science, in fire management, and also supporting um, prescribed burning, which often um, needs to be led by local First Nations and Indigenous communities. So funding, capacity, uh, training are some of the key recommendations from our report. So in your minds, as we sort of sum up this interview, what are the key takeaways from the research that you did, from the report? Um, I guess one of the key things for me is in 2017 and 2018, um, we saw over 16 community forests and many, many communities across the province who were affected by those wildfire seasons. And what happens is that many of those communities are then responding and recovering from those fires rather than being able to proactively mitigate against future fires. Um, and that trade-off can be really challenging for these communities. And so it's really important to focus on the proactive management um, so that we're not in a position where we have to um, be recovering from these fires for such a long period of time. And I might just add to that, you know, the, the last two years, 2019 and 2020, were below the 10-year average in terms of area burn. So they were quite wet years, particularly in the interior. So I think it's really important that just because we've had a number of years where we haven't had really major wildfires here in BC, we really mustn't get complacent. So looking forward to future years, making sure that we're being proactive, um, thinking ahead, doing this planning, community engagement, these proactive approaches that we've spoken about so that we are prepared in the case of a future wildfire season. Well, hey, guys, thanks so much. You know, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with us some research that could really help Canadian forests and Canadian communities. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks, Nikki. That's our Nikki Reitmeyer talking about preventing wildfires. This is the time to talk about it, right? This is the time when that work can actually be done. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the real estate market has been quite surprising during the pandemic. We saw lots of pent-up demand. We saw numbers kind of staying higher when we thought they would be lower. But what we haven't really talked about is the pre-sale market. And that, of course, is where homes are sold before they are built. So let's find out what's going on with those numbers, because they're a good indicator of what we're going to see kind of coming up in the market. Joining us now is Cam McNeil, the Executive Director at MLA Canada. They're a real estate marketing and service company. And we're talking about those pre-sale numbers now. Cam, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sammy. Thank you. Now, I had an email uh, from a local development that w had opened up their office, right? Had opened up their yeah. showroom for people, and then all of a sudden got an email saying, yeah, we're closing this because we're going to rethink this project. How common is that right now? Well, it's, it has been quite common um, over the last couple of years. The market, the, um, uh, we need to look at the market prior to COVID to really <clears throat> understand what's been happening. Uh, the market slowed down in late 2017. Um, you know, after the um, uh, NDP minority government came in, they had uh, several initiatives designed to uh, 
cool down the real estate market, which prior to that was red hot. And that's exactly what happened. The market cooled down. And uh, up until about late 2019, the market was quite slow. And then, um, and then things started to roll back. And it led with the, first of all, the resale market. You've seen the MLS numbers, and you've spoken about that on your show, uh, really come back in late 2019. Then, of course, COVID hit. And uh, the resale market usually is a leading indicator of what's going to happen in the pre-sale market. So the pre-sale market's been a little bit sluggish up until recently, and uh, fairly recently we've seen the market come back quite strong. Okay, so how recently and in what ways is it strong? Well, uh, the um, we've, we produce a monthly report where we watch the market very carefully. It's uh, called the MLA Pre-sale Pulse, and we can't look at the MLA, um, sorry, the MLS numbers. We have to you know, gather numbers from the industry and aggregate a bunch of information, watch things as close as we can. And in September, we saw only six projects open up, and that's a low number historically, of which um, uh, of which about 25% of the products sold, which is not, it's pretty good, but that's an overall low amount of inventory released into the market. However, in October, we saw 14 projects released. So that's, you know, getting back to more historically normal numbers. And again, 25% of that product is released, which is an excellent number when we're looking over the last uh, two years. And in November, it's too difficult to see how things are going to be going now, but it seems to continue to be trending in a positive direction. Um, we forecast less than 14 projects released, um, somewhere six to eight range. And, uh, and we'll be watching that quite closely. So what is that, what kind of signal does that send to developers then who might have been sitting on the fence about projects they had been working on? Well, that's exactly what uh, the developers have been doing. The developers simply will not release a project unless they feel the market will support them. So we have been predicting that there's a, a going to be a low supply situation. Um, COVID has been quite surprising. The, the first couple of months of, of, the, of the, the pandemic, housing activity and, and consumption of housing activity was, was slowed significantly. But then as things normalized and the industry went through learnings, we were able to continue to transact and, and deliver housing in a fairly uh, normal fashion. And um, the latter part of COVID has been, has been quite busy. And developers then, of course, seeing this activity, have been able to make decisions to release their projects into the market. But the really important part of this comment is, is that developers won't release a project unless they feel that the market can support it. And so uh, when we have a, a built-up supply shortage, it creates the, um, uh, the fundamentals in order to, to in, entice new projects to come back into the market. So what kind of projects are we talking about, though? Like, is it the townhouses? Is it the condos, three-bedroom condos? Like, what are people looking for? Well, we've seen the market start with smaller projects that seem, that the development community seems to think are going to be easier to, to get going. The really large, ambitious projects, those have been the ones that have been tending to watch and sit on the sidelines. Um, we are now starting to see some of those e- even larger projects, the big concrete high-rises, for example. We're starting to see those come into the market as well and, and achieve fairly good pre-sale uh, results, uh, like I said in my early comments. So uh, there's a, a project, for example, that we just released in East Vancouver, and uh, we've only just opened up about two weeks, and we've sold, uh, we've sold about uh, 25% of that project, which is fantastic. And, you know, going back into 2015 and 16, we may have seen 
the market sell half of that project um, in a month. And now we're seeing numbers lower than that, but still very sustainable, healthy numbers. Yeah, but who's buying it, Cam? That was always the problem, right, in 2015 and 2016, is that who was really lining up and doing all the buying? Well, these projects, in order for them to finish construction, they first start selling, and they won't be delivered for uh, between two and four years. And so sometimes these projects are being purchased by investors that uh, never intend to live in them, but um, are are buying them, which allows these products to start construction that eventually becomes part of a rental stock, or they resell them with, uh, closer to completion if, if they've managed to appreciate. And you're absolutely right. That was a big part of the market yeah. driving it, uh, prior to 2017. And now that that buyer is still still there, but, but not a not the majority right. of the buyers. The majority of the buyers are end users looking for homes for themselves. And there's simply nothing in the resale market or nothing that suits them. And so they're buying something that is yet to be constructed. Right. All right, Cam, thanks so much for the analysis this morning. All right. Thanks so much, Cindy. Take That's, care. You too. That's Cam McNeil, Executive Director with MLA Canada. They're a real estate services and marketing analysis firm. Talking about pre-sales, which seem to be on the rebound. They had been lagging behind kind of resales and in the housing market. And now they seem to also be making a comeback, which again amazing. In the middle of a pandemic, you think what's going on with the real estate market? It has continued to kind of defy expectations there. This is Mornings with Simi. Thought we'd take a moment to see how families with autism have been coping with COVID-19 during the pandemic. And that, according to a new report this morning from SFU, it means not well. Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak to Grace Irochi, who's the SFU Professor of Psychology and Director at the Autism and Developmental Disorders Lab. What did you uncover about just how much stress families with autism are facing? I mean, we're all facing a lot of stress because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it seems to be exasperated for families who have children who are on the autism spectrum. Absolutely, Nikki. So we had a hunch, you know, there are already families who are stressed by just all the additional things they have to do, given that their children face many challenges with learning, with um, behavioral difficulties, with anxieties and various other issues uh, on a day-to-day basis. And then we, we thought, you know, adding this additional stress of the COVID situation must be really exacerbating everything that is going on for these families. And that is actually what was confirmed. But we were really shocked to know the extent of it. So families telling us, you know, that they're concerned for their children's uh, safety, you know, the aggression level sometimes in children goes higher when they're stressed and anxious. And also, you know, behavioral difficulties escalate. And so safety was a concern. Just the education, uh, lack of education and lack of supports from the usual services that they receive. So these families rely on professionals and not just one professional, but usually there's a team of professionals working with these families. And because of COVID, just all of these professionals pulled away because of the restrictions, right? So they were left with really almost nothing. And there was very little communication initially from uh, the Ministry of Children and Family Development. Also, the Ministry of Education took quite a, a while before figuring out what they were going to do. And the situation of dealing with special needs kids really was was kind of left 
to the end. And it, it was very difficult for these families to sit around waiting to hear what was going to happen for them. So it was quite, quite challenging. Yeah, and one particularly sad finding in your research was 10% of families have considered putting their child into care because of everything they've been facing. Yes, that was pretty shocking to hear, even for us. But I think if you if you think about what's going on for a family, first of all, the isolation, not having all of the supports that they usually have to keep themselves afloat, basically, to, to keep themselves coping with situations, then you can start to see how desperate a family really can become. And that can be true of, of any family. But for these families, again, because they're so reliant on the system, right, the services that they receive are essential. And when you put, start pulling away those services, they're really left with a highly stressful situation. And as you can imagine, this would be absolutely the last resort, you know, for a family thinking that they're just not able to care for their own child. And the other thing to consider is that autism spectrum is a condition that in in most cases is is highly genetic and so we're we're talking about families who not only maybe have one child who has special needs but some of these have families have more than one child two three even four children in the same family i've seen how much these families struggle personally and i can tell you if any of us were in that situation we would be coping with the same level of stress and probably making similar having similar ideas about you know what am i going to do how am i going to deal with this situation over the long term Moving forward, I imagine that your hope is that governments, authorities will take heed of of what you've learned here and that they'll react accordingly and ideally offer more services and more supports in the context of COVID-19 to assist these families. Yes, absolutely. What families, parents in particular, are really concerned about is the loss of skills. So remember that Many of these children rely on a team of people, you know, special education assistants at school, behavioral consultants or behavioral interventionists at home, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists. So there's a variety of people that work together with the child and the family to help with skill building. So during this period of no services or services online, which are not always ideal, parents are are really concerned that their children are losing skills. And the other thing that we have to consider, because of the funding structure in British Columbia for these families, they um, receive funding to help pay for many of these services that are very expensive. And uh, unfortunately, the government, uh, the Ministry of Children and Family Development has not been too flexible with allowing families to roll over funds that they were not able to use during the uh, COVID-19 restrictions. And so many of these families are desperate because they can't afford many of these services and they weren't allowed to keep those, those few funds, which often... For many of these families over uh, where their children are over six years old, they get $6,000 a year to pay for all of those extra services. And so it's not a lot of money considering 
they're very concerned again. How are they going to make up for any loss? How are they going to keep these professionals without sufficient funds? So families really have felt ignored, I think, by the government. They haven't felt heard. And so I would hope that the government, you know, begins to, as now we've we've been over the emergency, it's now really time to be acting and to be listening to families and hearing their distress and really doing something practical for them. So Nikki Rettmeyer speaking to Grace Iorochi about families dealing with autism and the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. Promising news this morning about the Moderna vaccine for COVID-19 coming not long after the positive news about Pfizer's vaccine as well. We'll have more on that coming up on the show. But also, we still have a ways to go in terms of information and messaging during this pandemic. To talk more about that, Jonathan Jerry joins us now, a science communicator with McGill University. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. What does it mean to be a science communicator? So my job is basically to uh, make science understandable to people who are not experts in science. Well, this sounds perfect. I feel like we've called the right person this morning then. Uh, Let's talk (laughs) about this. So when you hear all of this information, all this science information flying around about COVID-19, how are you getting through to people and talking about it? So it's, I mean, first it's important to go to primary sources and find out what exactly does the data say, and then to explain it in a way that makes sense, because there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, and that's something that, I, that I'm particularly interested in, is, is misinformation and, and pseudoscience uh, in, in, these, in these fields. Uh, and we've never seen as much misinformation as we have uh, with COVID-19. So what should we look for then, if we're kind of trying to find out more information about this, what sources should we look for? What, what should we dismiss? I mean, I think that, you know, Regular media journalists have done a, a pretty good job uh, so far in, in, in this pandemic. Um, now, of course, there's always the uh, the, the attraction to uh, talking about new studies that seem to show X and Y. Uh, but but overall, I think that you know trusting uh, good sort of mainstream media sources over things that you see being shared on Facebook uh, that's probably a step in the right direction. That's the big one, right? I mean, can you even possibly keep up, Jonathan, in your job with what's going on on social media? Uh, I can't. I, I honestly can't. Uh, the, you know, I, I know a lot of people sort of in, in this in this field, and sometimes I hear from one of them, "Did you see this thing?" And I'm like, "No. What, what do you mean? I'm, I'm on three other things that have been spreading because every uh, every new discovery brings along with it misinformation, and then beyond that, there are just fears that run rampant about various aspects of the disease. I mean, just with masks. I mean, we've seen so much misinformation about masks. Uh, you know, the myth that they, they cause infection, which is not true. Uh, all these kinds of things. So it's it can be quite quite challenging to uh, to keep up with all of this. Do you think the mask misconceptions are the biggest ones out there? Like if you had a moment here to tell people, listen, if I could tell you one thing, this is what that one thing would be. Uh, I mean, I I think so, but but again, it it just keeps changing because you know now we're hearing a lot of uh, very encouraging, although very preliminary news about uh, vaccines being tested in humans. Uh, we're going to face a huge tidal wave of misinformation about vaccines, and so then 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 that's going to be the big thing to talk about. But yes, right now, 
you know, mask wearing can be so uh, important. There's a lot of misinformation about masks. There's, uh, you know, the, the idea that, you know, it will cut off your, your oxygen supply, which is not true. If it were true, surgeons and, and their nurses will be falling down uh, unconscious in the OR every single day, right. which, which is not happening. Uh, so there's there's a lot of misinformation about masks. There will be a lot of misinformation, misinformation about vaccines. Uh, so we, unfortunately, we have to keep up with all of this. Uh, you know what? That's a great point about masks. I've been saying that to people for months now about, oh, okay, so next time you go in for surgery, or do you care if your doctor wears a mask or not, you know, performing Precisely. surgery on you? Precisely, precisely. Well, you've got a lot of work to do, Jonathan. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right, my pleasure. That's Jonathan Jerry, science communicator with McGill University, talking about the ways in which they're trying to combat misinformation out there. I can't even imagine how tough that job would be right now, just dealing with that kind of tsunami of misinformation that's out there on social media. This is Mornings with Simi. The Fraser Health region has been the hardest hit by new COVID cases in the past few weeks. We've got more aggressive restrictions that we're all dealing with. We haven't seen really the impact of them yet. We haven't seen them working yet. And a lot of people are worried that we're going to see more non-essential businesses perhaps shut down for a couple of weeks to help deal with all of this. Now, for more on what's going on in Surrey, we're joined by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Good morning and thank you for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Good morning to your listeners. How concerned are you about the number of COVID-19 cases? Last couple of weeks, it does not look good in Surrey. Well, I'm, I'm extremely concerned because of the spike, um, and especially in Surrey. Um, we um, have done a number of things. Uh, we've tightened up even our city hall and staff. Um, I've been out on all the ethnic radio stations um, for Diwali, and and I have to say that um, we were very, very aggressive out there saying to people that they had to keep any celebrations just to small, immediate family. Um, We were extremely... hard on saying that people have to start wearing masks. And um, and the other thing that we wanted to really do is um, keep social distancing. And, and I think over the weekend, I was out in the weekend at a number of areas where Diwali was celebrating. And I have to give a lot of credit to our community because they did obey by those things. And, and I think we, we had a fairly um, calm Diwali, and, and, and I think that um, that really, really helped um, being out and, and people following the guidelines. And the three guidelines that uh, we've been out in Surrey that, that we want to really encourage all of our residents to do, um, because we do have breaks in, in our schools and in our sports events. So the sports events are another thing. Um, I was out this weekend, and, and, I have, and we asked the different groups in the sports to make sure that they just about say, it's mandatory for anybody that's going to watch their kids play and so forth that they had to wear masks and that helped over the weekend i was out at a number of sports events and all the anybody out watching their kids playing um soccer or any sports outdoor sports they all wore masks and and i i think that that is really important we need to enforce those type of things has the city done enough though like what about bylaw officers have there been fines issued do you get a lot of complaints from people 
Yeah, we, we actually have really beefed up our bylaws over the last um, weekend, especially this last weekend. Also beefed up our police and ODEM patrols. Um, and, and they are really, um, we've used approach, uh, if they see some some bigger groups, for example, that, that they try to educate them and have them understand. But we do have some bad apples out there. And, and so we, we, we have been finding people um, if, if they um, won't cooperate and do it. And, and so we're using um, all the facilities, all the um, personnel that we have um, to be out in our community, uh, again, on, on more education and hoping people will will um, cooperate. But if the ones that don't, then we do fine. We've, we issued a number of fines over the last weekend. Oh, so just this past weekend, number of fines were issued. Yes. Some cities have mandated masks, Mayor McCallum. Is that something that you are considering? Because clearly there is a problem in Surrey. Well, um, Surrey is part of the big city's mayors, and we've had um, weekly meetings actually every other day with the big cities across Canada, and a lot of cities have man- mandatory masks. Um, we're not at that stage, I don't think, in Surrey at this stage, but we're awful close to it. Um, certainly, I've been pushing very strongly to everybody in community that we have to wear masks. City Hall, we have to wear masks now um, for any of our employees, and, and I think that the public needs needs to start to um, wear masks um, whenever they're out um, in the community. I, I think it's really, really important. And at this stage, we're, we're using education to, to, our, to our residents so that they wear masks. But, but I personally believe that we, we, we need to get um, make sure that everybody is wearing masks now. What do you think happened? Like, what went wrong in Surrey? Then did people stop paying attention? Were people too lax? Well, I think the, um, the the people were good at the at the first round of the COVID, um, but then when we started to open up facilities and have sports events and and sort of um, community events, then people became too lax. And and you know, often the second wave of COVID nineteen, uh, we know that from the past. Often the second wave is worse than the first wave, and and so um, it's really really important for the people to recognize that we we have to follow the rules we, we have to prevent it we have to fight this disease i mean we've got to get it in our mental condition that we're going to fight it and we're going to win it and by fighting it we need to protect ourselves so we, we've instead of being a, a sort of sit back and wait and make sure we do all the things we've got to turn this around and get mad and fight it and make sure that um um, we get rid of it, and that we have to wear our masks. We we have to stay in small small family groups, and we have to particularly keep social distance away when when we're out. And if we do those things, mm-hmm. and, and we all do that, then we will fight that, and we will defeat this uh, this virus. And especially with good news that there's appears to be a, a, a couple of. Um, of, of solutions for vaccination, vac- vaccines for it coming, coming in. Now's right. the time to do the fight to, to get this thing under control. Let me ask you then about the fiscal situation that Surrey finds itself in. We know of other communities, Vancouver's been very vocal about this. What kind of a fiscal impact has this had in the city of Surrey? Well, actually, we've um, we've been able, our staff have been able to to handle it um, in a you know in a really good way. Our fiscal is very very strong. We're probably of the big city mayors 
the strongest of any big city mayor in Canada because um, we we talk to them all the time. But we've come through this year um, with no deficit um, in 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 our finances and and that's because our our staff have done a tremendous job of of working um through this so that our city's actually in a very strong um, financial situation are you happy with how the province dealt with money coming to the cities yes we're extremely happy um we were very very pleased um we, we were part of um, cities that were asking governments um, or provincial governments across Canada and certainly um, our current government um, is um, really was a leader in, in helping the city. So we're, we're very, very pleased in, right. in Surrey for the amount that we got. Because right, Vancouver wasn't very happy. Well, um, Surrey's not Vancouver. Um, Surrey um, is becoming a very a big economic um, 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 city. Um, we, we're having um, people come into our city at a rate of about 1,500 every month now. We're into the largest um, development um, project in our history in Surrey with building um, high-rises and, and all sorts of townhouses and condominiums. Um, and people are loving um, to, to come to Surrey. Um, the people in Surrey are happy with the facilities, and we're going to be bringing forward a budget that um, is our largest expansion budget in our history in building um, facilities in mm-hmm. Surrey. Now, Mayor McCallum, let me ask you, if these numbers don't go down soon, in Surrey in particular, would you support the idea of things closing perhaps for a couple of weeks, a bit of a circuit breaker to break that transmission? Well, I'm not. I'm not one to do that. I'm one to to more to to encourage our residents. Let's fight it now, so we don't have to do that. So, um, my my role right now, as far as um, myself and the city is is and our staff is, let's fight this. Let's get our residents out there to get mad and fight it, and make sure you wear all the precautions for it. We will win this war, and it now's the time to do it, especially with the vaccinees. And we we don't want to go to starting sh- shutting down our businesses again because that will really hurt our economy here and and then it has more problems down the road if that happens let's let's fight it now we're we're, we're all capable of doing it and if we have that mental thing of of saying that we're going to fight this disease and win and and um, then we will get it done all right mayor mccallum thank you for your time this morning okay thank you very much and thank you to your listeners That is Doug McCallum, the mayor of Surrey, talking about the number of COVID-19 cases. We know Surrey is, of course, unfortunately, the kind of epicenter of the huge number, the rise of cases that we have seen happen over the last few weeks. And as you heard him say, a very busy weekend. They did issue some fines. I'm sure there'll be more information coming about that later this morning. Uh, But there was, of course, Diwali that people were concerned about. There were lots of Diwali celebrations happening. Mayor McCallum says that he feels the community listened and dialed those back. Now, that's something we won't know for sure for a couple of weeks. That increase in numbers that we're seeing right now certainly came from Thanksgiving, from Halloween, gatherings that, you know, we weren't supposed to do, but obviously a lot of people did. So did the messages get through for this past weekend? So interesting other things that he had to say there. He said he doesn't want to do the mask mandate, but they are close to that uh, if these numbers do continue the way that they are. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Lots of questions and concerns about the school system right now. We heard how Fraser Health has shut down three schools in that region, one in Surrey, one in Delta, one in New Westminster, because there are concerns about the number of COVID-19 cases there. So in Surrey in particular, parents are asking questions about the protocol of when does that happen? Uh, they When are too many cases too many and then a school gets shut down? So joining us now is Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School Superintendent, to talk more about that. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. You're welcome. How comfortable are you right now where Surrey schools are in dealing with COVID-19? I think I'm I'm pretty comfortable. We're always, of course, uh, concerned when there is an outbreak. It's a big deal to declare an outbreak. Um, but when you look at, you know, three months in where we are overall, you know, we've had a, a number of exposures and, it, you know, our numbers show limited transmission. And so I think the, the protocols are working. Um, I think we'll always want help from from the health authorities when it comes to determining if there's been transmission and what do we do then. Right. So with the closure of this one particular school then in Surrey, does that make you look at other schools and say, like, let's tighten up here. Let's make sure we don't have to do more of this. Yeah, I think there's, you know, prior, just prior to this outbreak, we'd actually requested uh, from Fraser Health to send a team into our schools, to one of our schools. And we did a, an environmental assessment. We're always looking to, okay, what can we do better? Um, you know, we don't want transmission in the schools. There are protocols in place, but, you know, are masks being worn consistently? Are, you know, students remaining physically distanced? What about informal times like staff rooms? All of those things. So we had that assessment a couple of weeks ago, but we can always do better. No question. Are there regular checks being done in schools? Yeah, every school has a health and safety committee, and then we have a district health and safety committee. As far as checks from health, this was a, like a, a request from us that would they partner with us and bring a team, an external team into a school, and and uh, we were very happy to make that happen. So what are we learning about the way this is unfolding? Then? Like, Are there things that you think will change in Surrey schools as a result of what's happened with Cambridge Elementary? Uh, you know, I think so, because I, I, you know, and when I say, will things change? I, I think people need to, all of us remember that the basics really matter. I, I was a little bit concerned that, you know, when you look around Surrey, when you saw the numbers modeled out from uh, Dr. Henry last week with, you know, over 4,000 cases in Surrey compared to, you know, 400 in Delta and 400, over 400 in Langley, our numbers are very large. So, you know, the basics, keeping distance, walking, washing your hands, wearing a mask and staying home and, you know, eliminating the social interactions. I think getting back to the basics matter for everyone because while schools are a mirror of the community, it means that with over 4,000 cases in Surrey, we're going to continue to see cases come into our schools. Was this a situation that you were kind of bracing yourself for? Like, was it inevitable that one the school was going to get shut down? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you'd say inevitable. I mean, with the amount of COVID around, we're bound to see. I mean, we've had over 160 notices of exposure to schools. I think it was inevitable that we're going to see transmission in a school. And it's just how far does that transmission go? So, you know, obviously, you know, it's a rare event. Uh, will it happen again? It very well could. So what is your message then to Surrey parents this morning? I think the message to parents would be back to, you know, listen to the advice of the provincial health officer in terms of keeping the the basics. Please, you know, uh, take care of your child and your family. If you have symptoms at all, do not send your child to school. And if you work in the district, you know, if you have symptoms, stay home. Uh, You know, don't socialize. It's not a time to go out with them when you look at the number of cases in Surrey. You know, we want to keep our schools safe and the schools want to keep the community safe. So anything we can do as a district to educate our families and ourselves 
principles around how we can remain vigilant. Uh, it's the big deal right now as we head towards the winter break. So is the concern here, that, is it the teachers that are, you know, having the concerns about bringing COVID in? Is it coming from students? Where is Where are the cases actually coming from? Well, this is where we, we don't actually know, right? I mean, we when there are cases in the community and there are outbreaks in the you know at specific facilities in the community, they come into the school, and then of course we have kids together in school in classrooms, and and so again the transmission has happened in schools in uh, about four situations right now. Cambridge actually would be the fifth, sorry, um, but beyond that, the transmission is happening in the community and in homes and in businesses, and then the people are coming into schools, and then that's where we issue. The notices and then we watch very carefully to see if there's any spread at the school. I mean, we meet with health uh, almost daily, uh, really, right now. So it feels like schools are at the end of the chain. Yeah, I, I mean, schools are a part of the community, like they are a hub of the community. So we are, uh, I'm not sure what the end of the chain, we are certainly a big link in the chain, that's for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. All right. You take care. You too. That's Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School Superintendent. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's another sign that I think kind of bothers people about where we are at right now, and that is three schools in Metro Vancouver have been closed over the weekend. So one of them because of too many COVID-19 cases, the other two indirectly for the same reason, staffing shortages due to COVID-19. It's going to be about two weeks before students are allowed to return. Now, for more information on those schools and the stories, check out globalnews.ca. But let's talk about what comes next now. Joining us this is Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the staffing shortages for two of these schools here. What's going on there? So we have a critical teacher shortage, and it's not new. We've had it since since um, the return of our restored language, basically. Uh, we At that point, we had already begun to experience a teacher shortage. Um, we participated with the government in 2017 on a task force, and not all the recommendations were implemented. And so nothing's been done to really address the teacher shortage, and it's continued to get worse. And now we're in both a pandemic and a teacher shortage. And so those two things are coming together, and it's not a good situation. Now, is this teachers who are... Is it sick days that are having an effect? Because obviously you don't want anybody coming to work if they're even feeling slightly sick. That's part of it. And also, you know, we just don't have enough uh, teachers um, to fill in when teachers are away. And, you know, that's partly what's happening with some of the school closures, in particular the one, uh, the Jarvis School uh, in Delta. We saw that also in the Okanagan um, at the Francophone School, that it was about staffing uh, and, and right. lack of people to replace. So it's, it's very concerning. I anticipate it's going to continue to happen, though, that we're going to have uh, schools closing, um, both because of the pandemic, but in other situations it'll be because they just can't find enough re- replacement teachers. So you think this is just the beginning we'll hear more of these well you know unfortunately and it really depends on the community spread and you know how people are kind of um how responsible people are being uh with listening to the recommendations in the communities there's right now it's no doubt that the communities are impacting schools um so schools are experiencing more and more exposure events that we're concerned about. And then when you have an exposure event, you're always to have the chance of in-school transmissions. We've been calling on government to act in terms of those in-school transmissions to reduce them um, by implementing a mask policy. And at this point, we're saying, you know, the situation in Fraser Health is very concerning to us and families. 
And so we think that school uh, classrooms also should be capped at 15 um, in order to promote physical distancing. So those are two things, physical distancing Mm -hmm. and mask wearing, that we hear so much in terms of our community, our approach to how we operate in our communities. But they're still not... Um, measures that are in place in our schools and in our classrooms. And that's been a problem all along. And it seems like there's been no response to the worsening situation in Fraser Health. Okay, when you talk about limiting 14 students into a class, how would that work if there's already not enough teachers? It'd be 15. And it's already working right now in some places. And so there are districts, including um, Vancouver, um, and and most of them, it's their secondary schools uh, where they have a hybrid model. And so they're using that hybrid model to reduce class sizes so students aren't in school every single day. And that's that's the more realistic approach right now, given the teacher shortage. Um, and, and we think it's an important safety measure. So obviously, uh, everyone wants children to be in schools. Uh, we, we absolutely want that as well. Um, but already, we have secondary schools that don't have uh, students in school every single day. And, and I'll just note that, you know, these schools that we're talking about today are elementary schools. And so, um, you know, we're, we're, we um, do want to see that across the board, but in particular, um, we think that action needs to be taken in the schools that are in the Fraser Health Authority right now. What about the idea of keeping schools closed perhaps longer for Christmas break, putting an extra week in there to help you know, keep kids at home and, and maybe break some of that transmission going on in the community? Well, I think that that assessment will need to be made, um, and it really depends on on what happens with the virus as we move forward. So we're already seeing these uh, schools closing for two weeks, um, and you know that that's a a, a good move. Uh, something needs to happen in those situations when, where you know uh, the one school in Surrey was continuously getting exposure notices, and and then the the outbreak, of course. And so that 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 you know will likely happen um, between now and Christmas, but you know it, it really does depend on where we're at. I think, and and that assessment needs to be made all along. And we'd like to be a part of that conversation because you know we are seeing uh, the results of those. Um, uh, measures that health is either putting into place or not putting into place, we're seeing the impact in our schools firsthand. And so, you know, we'd like to be a part of the conversation um, as far as, uh, you know, closing schools before Christmas or what have you. Do you think people are just not being careful enough out in their communities? Well, I think we're seeing, you know, the evidence about where the virus is coming from in communities. And so I think we do need to be more careful. Um, but, you know, in, in a, and there comes a point in time where, you know, the, the spread just becomes, you know, to a point where it's very difficult to control because it becomes exponential. And we don't want to see that happen. And we certainly don't want to see that happen in our schools. Uh, we, we still don't know why you wouldn't take every possible precaution in this situation, given, you know, we have both uh, students and teachers in schools with underlying conditions. So they're already more vulnerable. Why on earth wouldn't you um, take all the necessary precautions that you possibly can in order to prevent in-school transmissions. That's the part that, you know, we're right. kind of at odds with right now in term, with government and the provincial health office. What's the number one thing then that you would tell them to do? Well, th- those two things. It's the mask policy and it's the um, 
physical distancing, so it's the reduction of the class sizes. And then we can start to talk about ventilation systems because that's another issue where the provincial health office is calling for MERV 13 filters to be in ventilation systems or higher, and that's the greatest protection for, you know, the the spread, the transmission Mm -hmm. of the virus, uh, the aerosol transmission of the virus. Um, But, you know, the reality is that many schools have old systems and they can't accommodate those filters. And so then what do you do? You know, what can we do in our classrooms, the air filtration systems in our classrooms, um, or the HEPA filters in our classrooms? You know, maybe that's the next step. So, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done that is not getting done, and I think that's our frustration. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you so much to me.